Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a podcast series presented each year by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, the Gotham Center's director. And this year, because COVID-19 robbed us of the many spaces normally open to the public each fall by this wonderful event, we decided on something a little different. Because we're all stuck at home instead of traipsing around this city we love, this season of Sights and Sounds focuses on locations that can't be visited anyway. Places that are long gone, that were nonetheless of great importance to New York's history. We're calling it Lost NYC. In this episode, Stacy Horn talks about the notorious lunatic asylum, prison, workhouses, and hospitals that once stood on Roosevelt Island. A two-mile-long, thin strip of land in New York City's East River between Manhattan and Queens, Roosevelt Island still feels pretty isolated and remote in this densely populated metropolis. But in the late 1800s, Blackwell's Island, as it was then called, had a far more ominous reputation, defined by the grim network of institutions that occupied it. Using the reports of William French, an Episcopal missionary who visited the facilities each year for decades, Horn takes us on a tour of its lunatic asylum, workhouse, almshouse, penitentiary, and hospital in the Gilded Age period, drawing on her book, Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in 19th Century New York. To hear the rest of this series, exploring New York City's most important historical sites and organizations, visit us at gothamcenter.org or find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. Roosevelt Island is a two-mile-long, thin strip of land that lies in New York City's East River between Manhattan and Queens. Even though almost all its 19th-century buildings are gone, the island still has a back-in-time, otherworldly atmosphere. It's not the city, it's not like a suburb, and even though it's easy to get there and back, it still feels cut off from the comparatively busy life that surrounds it. For me, that gives Roosevelt Island an irresistible secret garden-like quality. But it's not hard to imagine that for the people who lived here in the 1800s, detained in prisons, mental asylums, or public hospitals, looking away from the island towards Manhattan would have been quite a different experience for them. New York City must have looked as magical and alluring as Oz and every bit as unattainable. Dark stories of places and people like the forgotten inmates of what was then called Blackwell's Island have always captivated me. Recovering these stories and reminding the world of the injustices done is both a form of resurrection and redemption. This led to my 2018 book, Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad and Criminal in 19th Century New York. My original plan was to do a book on the municipal archives where many of New York City's historical records are stored. I've spent time there researching almost every book I've written. It's an enchanted place for me, and every visit ends up being a history treasure hunt. I might be there to, say, find arrest records from a little-known race riot in 1837, for instance, but then I stumble upon coroner's inquest records from the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, or a memo to the Department of Health with the subject, 
investigation of methods of transportation of corpses and foodstuffs on boat correction. Once I found a list of all the air raid shelters in New York and what they stored. So I proposed a book on the archives itself. In that proposal was the story of a little boy found wandering Manhattan in terrible shape, who was then shipped off to Blackwell's Island. For my publisher, that was the most gripping story. Why not write a book on Blackwell's Island instead, they asked. In that minute, my mind was racing. I didn't know a lot about the history of Blackwell's. I just had the vague awareness that something very bad had taken place there. Something about a lunatic asylum? I really didn't know the details. But what did happen to that little boy? Who else was sent there and why? And why does the name Blackwell's Island fill me with dread? I would love to write a book about Blackwell's Island, I answered. So first, a quick story on how Blackwell's came to be. In the early 19th century, Bellevue, now generally known as a public hospital, also housed New York City's lunatic asylum, its almshouse, its penitentiary, and its workhouse. As a result, what was then called the Bellevue Complex was horribly overcrowded. The conditions were criminal, but the city recognized the deplorable state of affairs and they bought Blackwell's Island with the plan to build replacement institutions that would be state-of-the-art and actual places of reform. It all went south very quickly for several reasons, but the main one was the city greatly underestimated how incredibly expensive it proved to run these institutions. To do it right cost a great deal of money. It's also important to note that for the most part, Blackwell's Island was built for immigrants and the poor. The well-to-do suffering from mental illness went to private sanitariums. When they got sick, they went to private hospitals. So from the beginning, the city did everything to cut costs. They built fewer buildings and filled cells or hospital rooms meant to house two inmates or patients with more and more people. They used prisoners on the island as nurses and attendants in the lunatic asylum. And over time, they fed inmates and patients less and less food. When I started researching my book, I quickly learned that not a lot of records survive. I always thought this was because the people who ran the island didn't want anyone to know exactly what went on there. Great, I've got a book contract and not a lot of source material. My first bit of luck was finding the Reverend William French. He was the Episcopal missionary to Blackwell's from 1872 to 1895. Six days a week after he got off the ferry from Manhattan, he would walk the length of the island, going from institution to institution to care for the spiritual needs of the inmates within. His annual reports of his work there were extremely frank and enlightening about just how bad it was on the island. I decided to structure my book the way French did his annual report, and so my book is divided into five sections, one for each institution, beginning with the lunatic asylum at the northern tip of the island. New York's lunatic asylum was supposed to be a refuge, a sanctuary, but not long after it opened, Charles Dickens visited and said it had that madhouse air with the moping idiot, the gibbering maniac, there they were, in naked ugliness and horror. Patients in the asylum were locked up and spent a good deal of time in straitjackets. 
One pregnant inmate who was put in a straitjacket and thrown into solitary subsequently gave birth there, alone, in a straitjacket. One incident I describe in my book details a murder in a place called The Retreat. The Retreat was one of the lunatic asylum buildings where the most violent patients were put. One night in 1879, Mary Stevens, the only nurse on duty for the entire building of 150 patients, heard a loud pounding coming from one of the cells. She ran and found an inmate crouched over another, pounding her head with a wooden pail that was used as a chamber pot. A third inmate was cowering away as far as she could, but in those tiny crowded rooms, that was just 10 feet. The nurse ran for help. The doctor, a 21-year-old who just graduated from med school the year before, arrived an hour later. To save money, the city often hired students and recent MDs instead of more experienced doctors. Even though Nurse Stevens begged the doctor repeatedly to move the victim to the hospital, he refused. He bandaged her head and left. She died an hour later. An inquest into the inmate's death concluded that the doctors hired were too inexperienced for the demands of the job, and they censured the commissioners who ran the island for their hiring practices. They also censured the doctor for not moving the inmate to the hospital. But the only person the commissioners held accountable for the death was Nurse Mary Stevens. Ignoring the inquest findings, they concluded that the inmate died due to gross negligence on her part. She should have done more to stop the large, mentally unstable woman in the process of trying to bash another inmate's head in. After the asylum, the next institution Reverend French would have walked to was the workhouse. Workhouses were very common prisons for people convicted of minor crimes like vagrancy or intoxication. The workhouse on Blackwell's Island quickly became the biggest correctional institution in the country. By the 1870s, roughly 20,000 to 33,000 Americans were sent there yearly. For a long period of time, a majority of them were female. The crime for which the women were convicted of most was disorderly conduct, a very broadly worded law that basically meant if you were causing some kind of public disturbance, the police could arrest you. In practice, it meant whatever the police and courts wanted it to mean and they used it very often to keep certain groups in line. During the period I wrote about, those groups were Irish immigrants and women. Since women had a harder time finding work in the 19th century, that meant once convicted, they couldn't make bail or pay a fine and off to the workhouse they went. This was a more serious matter than simply being unfair. 19-year-old Fanny Little, for example, was picked up for disorderly conduct in 1866. She was fined $500, a great deal of money then, and sentenced to five and a half months in the workhouse, an insane term. Most workhouse sentences were for 10 days. If she'd received even a slightly shorter sentence, she might have made it out of there alive. But just two weeks before her release, Fanny got sick. Twelve hours later, she was dead, the first to die in that year's cholera epidemic. Before it was all over, more people died of cholera on Blackwell's Island than any other area in New York. 
This was in part because the courts continued to send prisoners there even when they knew the outbreak on the island was the worst in the city. Exposés were written about the horrors of the workhouse, but there was never a public outcry. These were criminals, after all. They had it coming. After visiting the workhouse, the next place Reverend French would walk to was the almshouse. Almshouses were originally envisioned as liberal, humane dwelling places for the city's poor. That led to the second big mistake the planners of Blackwell's Island made, underestimating the number of poor that would need their help. So they had to pare down the numbers. As with every 19th century welfare program, they divided the poor into two categories, the worthy and the unworthy. The worthy included people like disabled veterans, widows, and orphaned children. Everyone else fell into the unworthy category. If you were among this very large number, your being poor was viewed as a personal moral failing and you weren't welcome in the almshouse. The only option they offered you was going to the workhouse, a prison. Social issues that made earning a living wage difficult, such as job discrimination based on race, ethnicity, or gender were not considered. The city kept trying to reduce the numbers in the almshouse. A quote from one yearly report specified just what this meant. Care has been taken not to diminish the terrors of this last resort of poverty. They added that it was better that a few should test the minimum rate at which existence can be preserved. In other words, what is the very least we can do without killing them? Remember, they were talking about the elderly, the disabled, and for a time, children. After the almshouse, French would come to the penitentiary. This was the first institution built on the island in 1832, and the plan for the penitentiary was to season justice with mercy. In other words, rehabilitate the inmates, not just punish them. Mercy, it turns out, had a price. In New York, for a time you could be sent to the gallows and hung for a relatively large number of crimes. By the time the penitentiary was built, imprisonment had replaced capital punishment except for the crimes of treason, arson, or murder. Fewer executions meant more prisoners. But only poor prisoners, for the most part. The affluent rarely went to prison. Even when arrested, itself unusual, their cases were either dismissed or resulted in a fine that they could easily pay. Members of the Women's Prison Association once sat in the courtrooms and wrote that commitment seemed to depend upon the good or bad humor of the justices or the amount of political influence the prisoner may have. One day while doing research at the New York Historical Society, I came across the letter from a young woman named Adelaide Irving to a prison visitor. In the 19th century, society women would visit women in prison to either write a report about their care and the prison or to offer guidance and assistance. Adelaide's story was the, one of the saddest in my book. Arrested for pickpocketing, a judge sentenced her to two years in the penitentiary. Here's how one inmate described the prisoner's rooms there. It's called a cell, he wrote, but trench would be the more explicit term. The cells were simply caves in the granite. Adelaide was just a kid, 15 years old, and it was her first offense. 
but she was poor. The last institution Reverend Brunch would have visited was City Hospital at the southernmost end of the island. This is where New York City's poor went when they got sick. Here's how it worked. First, they had to fill out an application to receive medical care. While being examined by a physician, someone else was making sure that they were really poor. If everything checked out, they were admitted. But if they were diagnosed with syphilis or another venereal disease, they were turned away and sent instead to police court. The only way to get treatment would be to voluntarily commit themselves to the penitentiary where they wore stripes and were treated like any other prisoner. There were no exceptions. Even children had to go to jail before they could get health care. And that was without looking into how the child got a venereal disease in the first place. The last mistake the Blackwell's Island planners made was isolating these three groups, the poor, the mad, and the criminal, away from everyone else while putting them all together. This led to a destructive and popular association in people's minds that continues still, that the mentally ill are to be feared, that the poor are criminals in disguise, and that, like prisoners, they were all, to one degree or another, guilty. 40,000 to 50,000 New Yorkers were sent to Blackwell's Island every year. Since those sent there were mostly immigrants, if you had ancestors who came to America in the 19th century, there's a good chance they spent some time on Blackwell's Island. This is your history, too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available wherever you get podcasts. And visit us at GothamCenter.org to learn more about all of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. Post-production for this season was provided by Garrett Tiedemann for Citizen Racecar. Special thanks to Dina Ecker and Jessica George for their help in the making of this episode. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Be safe, everyone.